0: I'm thrilled to welcome you for an important conversation with our fascinating guests, so let's get right to it. Now, I know we just finished a presidential election and we all probably wanna move forward, as I know I do, but the way in which we elect our presidents may deserve a closer look. After all, the US president is still the most important leader in the world. And of course, I'm talking about the electoral college, that confusing, archaic remnant from our founding fathers. You know it's an odd system when both Donald Trump and Joe Biden won by the same electoral college count, and yet Trump lost the 2016 popular vote by almost 3 million votes, and Joe Biden won the 2020 popular vote by 7 million votes. Another interesting takeaway from 2020 was that Trump actually received more votes in blue states than he did red states. He just didn't get enough support uh, from those states, California and New York. But to make sense of this, we're lucky to have two people who have really given this topic a lot of thought. Jesse Wagman serves on the editorial board for the New York Times where he's written about the Supreme Court and legal affairs since 2013. He was previously senior editor at the Daily Beast and Newsweek, a legal news editor at Reuters and the managing editor of the New York Observer. His recent book, Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College has been mightily praised with the New York Times writing People have been arguing about the Electoral College from the beginning, but no one has laid out the case as comprehensively and as readably as Bessie Wegman has. And I hope you'll uh, buy a copy of his book. Please also welcome Rick Hertzberg, our moderator and a longtime great friend of the common good. Rick is is an award-winning journalist and author, best known as the principal political commentator for the New Yorker, where he's credited with helping to redesign and revitalize the magazine. He also served as the editor of the New Republic and received um, numerous awards there. Um, and he was the chief speechwriter for President Jimmy Carter. I think I met you way back then, Rick. Yes,
1: um,
0: and at one point, one of his speeches delivered by President Carter increased the president's approval rating by 11 points. <laughs> so,
1: the other ones, though?
0: <laughs> He's been questioning the electro college system for a long time. Rick, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. We're honored to have you both. With that, I'm turning it over to you, Rick. We're having a little bit of audio. You're going to have to speak up, Rick. You're a little faint. Uh,
1: okay. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm really happy to be here and to do to to be part of the birth of this wonderful book. It is. It is. Uh, I can't recommend it uh, highly enough. And we we're lucky enough to have the author with us. And I want to ask him a question. Jesse, you're, look at that subtitle. You say, it says the case for abolishing the Electoral College. and Yet you do not advocate abolishing the Electoral College. Explain yourself.
2: <laughs> uh- so, for, so first, I want to say thank you to The Common Good for having me. I want to say thank you uh, to uh, Rick for agreeing to moderate this discussion. I will say that Rick ha- has been a longtime hero of mine as a journalist, as a writer, as a political thinker. Uh, if you don't have his book, Politics, is a collection of essays, you need to go buy it uh, right now. Uh, and uh, Rick is the way that I f- actually uh, came to understand a lot about the way the, the, Inequities, the distortions, the absurdities of the Electoral College, uh, because he's been writing about this issue um, for for longer than I have. Um, and so, to answer your question, Rick, uh, why do I, why is the subtitle of my book "The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College" uh, when uh, w- the major uh, proposal that I uh, side with in the book does not, in fact, abolish the Electoral College? Well. Uh, To use uh, one of my least favorite axioms, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, uh, The the, uh, idea that is uh, most fully advanced today that has gotten us closer as a country to a national popular vote uh, than uh, almost any in American history uh, does not in fact abolish the electoral college. It does not remove the mechanism of, of, of presidential electors from the constitution. In fact, it uses the presidential electors as the constitution explicitly permits them to be used, which is as state actors who are selected by their states and then who are selected within each state and then who are directed by the state legislatures in how to vote. Um, That is how we do it today. Uh, and, and, And the way we do it today is by this, what's called the state winner take all rule. And that's a term we're gonna use, I think a lot in this conversation and it's really important that people understand what that is. It is basically, it is just the way that state legislatures have decided to award their electors right now. All but two states do it this way. And it's, it's exactly what it sounds like, which is a state gives all of its electors to the candidate who wins the most votes in the state. They don't have to win a majority of the vote. They don't have to win by any specific margin. They just have to win the most. And they get 100% of that state's electors. You saw it playing out just a few weeks ago in Georgia, where Donald Trump was calling the Georgia Secretary of State on the phone and uh, gently nudging him to find a number of votes that would give him exactly one more popular vote than Joe Biden in the state. And that was because he knew with that one vote, he would get all of Georgia's 16 electoral votes. That is is the system, that is the way the Electoral College functions today. And it is what introduces all of the distortions and, Inanities of the college, as Patricia just said, I gave a statistic that I actually hadn't heard yet, but is a perfect illustration of this: uh, is that is that uh, Donald Trump won more votes in blue states, so-called blue states, than he did in red states. The reason that that doesn't translate in any meaningful way for him is because of the winner-take-all rule. All those blue state, all those blue state electors went to Joe Biden. So, what the the the, the when Rick says, well. Why don't you want to abolish the Electoral College? The solution that has been proposed and that started about 15 years ago, it was a computer scientist in Northern California who devised it, is to change the way that states award those electors rather than having them award them on the basis of their statewide popular vote. States agree to join in a compact with one another to award their electors on the basis of the vote in all 50 states put together. And that is the key difference. When states representing a major- an electoral majority, uh, meaning 270 electoral votes, that's what you need to win to become the president. When states representing that majority of electoral votes join in this compact, it automatically takes effect. And it automatically means that the candidate who wins the most votes in all 50 states becomes the president. And that solves this problem that we that we now live with, which is This state winner take all rule, which effectively erases tens of millions of Americans votes every four years because they happen to live in a state where their candidate did not win the most votes. So Democrats in Texas, Republicans in California, Democrats in South Carolina, Republicans in New York, tens of millions of Americans just by virtue of where they live are essentially erased from the cho- choosing of the president. And so this is a mechanism for this, this compact, which has been in effect now for 15 years, and it has 15 member states that have joined now representing uh, 174, electoral, uh, 174 electoral votes. I'm sorry, 194 electoral votes. Uh, so they're just uh, 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 196 electoral votes. Sorry for all the numbers here. They are 74 votes short of, a, of that majority. Uh, if, they kick, if they if they if ad- they adopt this and it be- takes effect we will then have a president elected by the national popular vote the most people in the country
1: yeah it's a wonderfully elegant solution <clears throat> and it makes you wonder how we've put up with what we what what what's been saddled on us uh, for all these years and it's a beautiful beautiful uh um, solution and it does and if you can solve a problem without amending the constitution even if you could amend the constitution it's a hell of a lot better than than messing around with our with the, the founding fathers who i suspect would be rather pleased uh, at this investment <laughs>
2: um so so c- can i say one thing about that um when i said there was more than one way to skin a cat um So that's the subtitle is the choice of my publisher Uh, and and as we all know those of us involved in book writing and book selling and book marketing, uh, certain words and certain ideas uh, draw people in. If, if I had just tried to explain what I explained here over the last several minutes on the, on the front cover of a book, no one would buy it. Um, but abolition has a certain uh, sex appeal to it. <laughs> what I will say is personally, I am agnostic on this issue. I, I would be fine with a constitutional amendment. I think in many ways it would be a, a stronger and, and obviously more permanent means of re- getting us to a popular vote. But given that a constitutional amendment right now seems like uh, a virtual impossibility. Uh, this mechanism, which we can talk about more if you want to, is, is by far the closest that we've come and the closest that, that we are probably going to get for the near future. Therefore, uh, I am open to many different ways of, of solving the problems that are caused by the state winner take all rules and the erasure of tens of millions of Americans votes.
1: It might, it might well lead to the abolition. Uh, for example, the, the women were voting in presidential elections long before uh, that was that right was given them in the Constitution uh, there were women voting all over the place especially out west uh, when <clears throat> and, and uh, it, leaving it up to the states either means what it says or it doesn't if it means what it says then a state is totally within its rights to uh, direct the way they can flip a coin um, they can have a lottery uh, they can have, Uh, they can have a vote of just the people in their state or they can go by the the vote in the whole country. And in fact, what that does is it just makes our our elections like everybody else's. Um, Why is it gonna be difficult to get to the, uh, to get it over the top or or is it going to be? Is there a real prospect that this could uh, happen if not by this election, obviously, but by the next one?
2: Yeah, so I think um, the hardest part is going to be making this a bipartisan effort, uh, or I I should say this, it already is a bipartisan effort Um, the key is convincing enough people that it actually is bipartisan and not a sinister plot by Democrats who are angry uh, because twice in the last 20 years, their candidate has won the most votes in the country and yet lost the White House and very nearly uh, a third time this year as Patricia pointed out in the introduction. uh, Yes, Joe Biden won the same uh, electoral college margin as Donald Trump did in 2016, even with a 7 million or 10 million vote swing in the popular vote. But I think we, we, we should not forget how close it came to going the other way with a swing of just about 40 or 50,000 votes in three key battleground states. Donald Trump would, would have been inaugurated for his second term yesterday, uh, even though Joe Biden still would have won by 7 million votes. So mm-hmm. that's a system that I just don't think uh, can coexist with a representative democracy in the 21st century for, for much longer. Um, the way that we get to uh, that, 200, that magic number of 270 is you got to convince more states to join in this compact. Right now, as I said, 15 states plus the District of Columbia are member states. The, uh, there is something that, uh, that uh, is, all of those states have in common, which is that they all pass this uh, under Democratic leadership. Uh, We use the term blue state, which is a term I hate because it implies that the state is somehow magically consists only of Democrats and that red states consist only of Republicans. The essence of my book is to argue that all Americans live everywhere. People of all faiths and creeds and colors and political orientations live everywhere. They live cheek by jowl. And that by erasing them just because of the party that they happen to support uh, in the region of the country they happen to support, we are, we are undermining the essence of our, of our representative democracy in choosing the leader Uh, of the country, the person who's the only person tasked in the country with having to represent all Americans equally, no matter where they live. Mm -hmm. So it means convincing some of the leaders in states with Republican leadership now that it is in their interest, not that they need to do this on principle, or that because that they should feel bad because their candidate won, even though he won the he lost the popular vote, they should do it because it is in their interest, because their voters are going to be disenfranchised every four years if they don't do it right now they're all disenfranchised except for a few voters in those battleground states that we all know Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, right? This is we've had these we've had these discussions now every 4 years and we all know which states we're talking about they shift a little bit from election to election but the bottom line is the vast majority of Americans don't count in the presidential election. And that just can't, that can't continue. And, and, and we can't function as a, as a healthy representative democracy if that continues. <clears throat>
1: and it's not just the voters who are nobodies when it comes to uh, presidential election. It's the politicians too. And if you're a politician, if you're a politician in a solidly blue or solidly red state during, a, during the presidential campaign, you don't get your phone calls returned because who cares what you think you have no influence. And it seemed to me that one of the reasons uh, that this proposal has has uh, picked up so much steam is that, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I haven't actually heard politicians say that very much, but it's so obviously true, isn't it?
2: it it's, a, it's a great point, and I'm really glad you brought it up. This is not just about the presidential election, it is about American politics all the way down through federal and state elections state-based party infrastructures are, are basically suffocated uh, for both cash and attention if they don't operate in a state that is a battleground state the reason battleground states matter is because with just the shift of a few thousand votes this way or that one candidate can get all the state's electoral votes so they spend all of their time and attention focusing their policy proposals and their and their and and, and their and their you know and their their uh, ads and their and their attention on on these states and on the voters and the interests of the voters in those states you know the example that is sort of most readily comes to mind was this year's a a focus on fracking Um, you know it came up constantly in the debates and i think in the uh vice presidential debate we went back for back and forth for five minutes over whether joe biden did or didn't support fracking and he's like why are we spending so much time talking about fracking? Well, it's because it's an issue that matters a lot to voters in Western Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania is, as we see, a very important swing state uh, and could be decisive in presidential elections going forward for, for, for many years. So what Pennsylvanian voters care about is what the presidential candidates of both parties have to say they care about. In the meantime, they ignore concerns of the vast majority of Americans, of Californians and New Yorkers who care about you know functional public transit or climate you know the, the, the ravages of climate change the wildfires that uh, you know that that so that brutalized california this fall were essentially ignored by the white house because donald trump could look out there and say doesn't matter what i do that i'm not getting their 55 electoral votes that kind of distortion and contortion of our national politics is is what i think is so harmful and what i think does bleed down to uh, to every level of government as you say and i talk to people in the book who say you know my state doesn't matter jamie raskin who who uh, is a representative a wonderful uh former constitutional law scholar and representative from maryland said you know when obama was running we were i was in a safe state he's like so you know, the, the Obama campaign would call him up and say, hey, send all your people over to Virginia, which we need to flip. You know, we need to win Virginia, which was more of a swing state in 2008. And, and Jamie said, you know, great, I'd love to help out. But what does that mean for Maryland's politics? It means that we're just ignored. We're forgotten. Nobody cares about building up our local political systems at all. So, yes, I think you're right. This is this is this is endemic to the entire political culture of America and not just the presidential race.
1: Yeah, and it affects, uh, it affects the way people behave as, as citizens too because it doesn't make any sense to have a coffee clot or to bring your neighbors in or to go door to door in your neighborhood. Politics is just, is just uh, abolished essentially for, for nine-tenths of the country by this crazy mechanism.
2: It's exactly right, I, in my, in, in in the, the, oh, I'm sorry.
1: We shouldn't sorry. really blame, blame the framers for this. Um, partly because, um, they figured that, that local people would know their local people, but they wouldn't know the national people. Now it's just the opposite. I mean, I, i I've, for one, I know who's running for president pretty generally, but I don't even know the name I'm ashamed to say of my state assemblyman. Uh, now I live in a place where it's always the Democrat always wins. It's sort of a microcosm of the, of the presidential election that way, but it, the status quo crushes not just um, it crushes volunteers, it crushes participation. It's just profoundly undemocratic. And and the framers, but what do you think the framers would think if they were uh, uh, if they were around? Do you do you think they'd be for this proposal?
2: So I I love this question because I think the mistake that we make when we debate the electoral college is to talk about it as something that the framers actually bestowed on us and that they would have an opinion on. The framers were uh, rushing to get out the door when they finally, at the very end of the Constitutional Convention of 1787, settled on a means of electing the executive. They had fought about it all summer long. It was one of the most vexing issues that they faced. They had talked about whether Congress should elect the president. They had had debates over whether it should be a popular vote. They talked about whether state legislatures should elect the president. Uh, There were fights between the bigger states and smaller states. There were fights between the slave owning the slaveholding states and the free states. So this was just a constant battle at the convention and at the very end they cobble in the in the side room of the convention hall four or five of the delegates get together they cobble together the longest and most convoluted provision of the entire constitution which lays out um, more or less the the system you know with with one major revision in the 12th amendment the, the system that we use today the electoral college. However, they did not for a minute discuss the idea of the winner-take-all rule, the statewide winner-take-all rule. That never came up at the convention. None of the framers talk about it. They don't talk about it afterward. States began, as I, as, I, as I said at the beginning, the thing that the framers did is they gave state legislatures the power to decide how to use this electoral college. It's bare bones in the Constitution. It says, essentially, states do whatever you want. And when states started adopting that winner take all rule, they called it the general ticket at the time, when they adopted that rule, and when the founders started to see it getting adopted and see that distorting effect it has on our politics, they they freaked out, they were horrified. James Madison in 1823, uh, he lived longer than any other founder and he was, you know, generally widely known as the father of the Constitution. He watched his design play out in practice, and he tried to amend the winner-take-all rule out of the Constitution. He wanted to ban it from use uh, uh, through a constitutional amendment, and he proposed this in 1823. He didn't succeed, obviously. We still use it today, states still use it today, but that's partly to answer your question about what would the framers think? I think they would be horrified that we now have this system that doesn't operate at all in the way that they thought it did, and the things that they thought that it might actually uh, address, which is the lack of—you uh, know—most Americans wouldn't know anything about poli- po- candidates for national political office, is obviously a, a non-issue today. We all know far more than we could possibly want to know about our candidates for national political office. So, to to. I think we really need to separate the discussion from what the framers were trying to do from the way this system actually operates today.
1: Well, it's, <clears throat> there's so much of the constitution that's kind of based on 18th century technology. I mean, one example is the fact that the, the president takes office a couple of months after the election. You know, in, in England, they had the election and the next day well, the, the new government takes. But ours is based on, the, on how long it took to get from you know to get right. to, from North Carolina up to the District of Columbia, so yeah, you needed a, you needed a month or two or three between the election and the, the new
2: government. It was even longer, right? It went. To, it was March four. It used to be March fourth, and then the twentieth amendment put it at January twentieth. Even that, as we have discovered, leaves quite a lot of opportunity for mischief, uh, and worse uh, uh, on the part of people who say aren't happy with the outcome of the election.
1: Mm-hmm. Now we've got how many people have we got uh, tuned in here? Can we I'm curious. <laughs> Patricia, do we have uh,
0: we've got we've got 50 people on screen now and we've got a, a, a number of questions from the audience.
1: <laughs> get- I'm, I'm incredibly curious to know what questions they've got.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, if, if you'd like, I'd like to take it to a, a good friend of ours who's on, Senator Al Franken, who's done a lot on this issue, um, helped uh, change the rule in Colorado. Um, Senator Franken, are you with us?
3: I am. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm not feeding back, am I? Good. <laughs> um, a couple of things. Uh, in Colorado, we just, this cycle had a referendum. Uh, This is the first time that there was a statewide referendum. The 15 states that Jesse was talking about had all had uh, passed uh, the state legislatures, both houses and the governors had signed them. Uh, By the way, I'm the co-chair of the advisory committee to uh, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Uh, My other co-chair is Michael Steele. And you know we're in a little trouble if Michael Steele is the only one we can get to do that. But um, Republicans, this used to be very bipartisan. Newt Gingrich was for this. It's just that after the Trump uh, election, we lost a lot of that support. We had hoped that we would uh, down-ballot pick up some state legislatures in states like North Carolina, Uh, in Minnesota, uh, some other states that would add to the 196 total. And that didn't happen. And we did win the referendum. And we won the referendum in Colorado, partly probably because Colorado is blue. But also because our messaging, we found out that if you say one person, one vote, that resonates with people. One person, one vote. The people running uh, again, uh, trying to vote no on this referendum, uh, basically were saying, "Well, this is going to take away Coloradans' vote." But we made the argument that in 2016, Coloradans voted for Hillary Clinton. The country voted for Hillary Clinton, and Trump was the president. So we won this because we didn't win down ballot. We may have to have may have to win this by state referendum in states that have referendums or referenda. And that might mean, this is the first time we had to really raise money. Uh, usually this was self-funded by John Coza and some other folks. Um, it may turn out that we really have to go uh, state by state where they have referendum because this is very popular with the American people. And if you explain it to them, and thank you, Jesse, for writing the book. So that will help with that effort. I'm going to shut up now because I'm,
2: yeah.
1: I don't
3: want
2: to. Oh, can
1: I? Jesse, can, I, can, you, yeah. can you tell us something about this fascinating character, John Coza?
2: Yeah. So John Koza um, is a is a computer scientist, he, he was inventing computers before there were even computer science programs in, in colleges and universities around the country. Uh, he, uh, he's up in Northern California, he's in Silicon Valley. Uh, he, um, he actually uh, was first distinguished by inventing the scratch off lottery ticket uh, in the 1980s Um, And it was there, in fact, in that process of of developing that and then selling it to state, multi-state lottery systems that he learned about the process of interstate compacts. Interstate compacts are essentially just contracts among states to do something that you know they want to be able to do together, uh, bound, bind each other to do, uh, but that, that that isn't going to go through the federal government. There are dozens of them in effect right now about water rights and about you know uh, multi state lotteries, that kind of thing. And what John Koza learned through his work in the lottery system was that interstate compacts could be a powerful way of doing something that you might not be able to do at the federal level, but that but which many states wanted to accomplish. So after the 2000 election, when uh, we had our first split in a, more than a century where the electoral college chose the candidate who, who won the, uh, who lost the popular vote. Koza was intrigued and he started uh, thinking through the process. I think he thinks about it more like, um, he's a mathematician at heart, right and so he was I think he was just deeply offended at the concept that the bigger number didn't win. <laughs> so uh, you know he I, I spoke to him about this and he said it's just wrong it just it, it just goes against the, it just goes against our basic intuitions about um, fairness. And so he realized it's that state winner take-all rule where, where that holds all the marbles, right so um, you know, the, this, the fact that states get to choose this for themselves and as Rick said, they can do it however they want. You know, if a state had chosen this past August, say uh, Florida, looking at the polls, the, the Republican lawmakers in Florida had said, uh, you know what, this is a bad, this is looking bad for Donald Trump. We don't wanna take a chance. We know Florida is a swing state. We're just gonna change the law and take back for ourselves the power to award electors. They could have done that. It would be entirely constitutional. This is what people don't understand is you have no constitutional right at all as a regular citizen to play any role in the choosing of your president. You are at the mercy of your state lawmakers. John Koza understood this and he said, what if instead of awarding the electors to the winner of their state, thereby disenfranchising tens of millions of voters in their own state, what if a state gave its electors to the winner of the national popular vote, the vote among all 50 states combined. And what if we only made this operational once states representing a majority joined in? Because obviously any state could do that today if they chose to, but they would be in effect unilaterally disarming if no other state also did it. So Coze's insight, the brilliance and the, and the cleverness of his insight was to pair these two things together. The agreement to award your electors to the national popular vote winner, and the holding off of triggering the compact until states representing a majority joined, which guarantees that the candidate who wins the most votes becomes president. Um, so Koza developed this in 2004. He worked with a lawyer who, who specialized in interstate compacts. They took it to Washington, they shopped it around, they, uh, Rick was actually at the uh, National Press Club uh, press conference and covering it for the New Yorker, which is where I first learned about it in a wonderful short piece that Rick wrote, um, describing, and which I uh, quote from in my book, uh, describing the scene there. It was this strange uh, combination of Republican and Democratic uh, ex-lawmakers. And, and he, uh, and, and, and John Koza basically introduces the proposal then in 2006, um, so about 15 years ago now, and by 2007, it gets its first member state in Maryland. Jamie Raskin, who I mentioned earlier, was at that time a state lawmaker. It was his first term in uh, the, the state house in Maryland. And he uh, it was the first bill that he introduced. And his colleagues said to him, you're insane. What are you trying to do? This is the election of the president of the United States. And he just plowed ahead with it, and I think, as Senator Franken said, it was the one-person, one-vote argument that was so compelling. And he won. He won over his colleagues. He got it passed. Maryland became the first state to to agree to join the compact, and now we're at 15 states. So, John Coase is just this fascinating character who who basically does nothing all day except work on this. He's written a book called Every Vote Equal, which. I have somewhere on my shelf over here. It's a massive book. It's about 1100 pages long. A half of it is devoted to debunking every single myth and misconception you could possibly imagine about the electoral college and the popular vote. You should buy it or read it or download it. Or I've like, I carry it with me all over the country. I've been stopped at airport security because it's such an enormous tome that they wanna know what the hell I'm carrying in my bag. Uh, But it is an incredible piece of uh, research and detail and um, and and precision that I think really just just does away with every possible dis, uh, disagreement you might you might try to come up with about why we shouldn't have a popular vote for president.
1: And Coza, your book, among other things, is a fascinating character study of this of this uh, gyro gearloose character who invented all this and who it seems I have I have no idea what his political views are or where he stands on the issues. He just but as he comes through in your book, he's just offended by illogic. He can't, he can't, and he can't leave it alone. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, he's um, you know, he's, he's a, he's a game guy. He, view, the way he views the system, he's just offended by the by the illogic and the stupidity of it. And it's not stupid because the framers were stupid. It's stupid because the framers had to live live with the technology of the 18th century and the technology of the 18th century was such that, yeah, you only knew your local people.
2: So mm-hmm. John him, John himself is a Democrat and he's uh, been a Democrat for a long time. I think he was a democratic elector uh, in California in 2000 or 2004. Um, but uh, the, the thing that he's proudest of is that this effort has been bipartisan from the start and he has on his team right now some very conservative people, including Trump supporters, who agree on probably nothing else with him except this principle, that the person who wins the most votes in the country should become the president. So what happens is because their audience is primarily state lawmakers, right? Those are the people they need to sell on this idea. They have seminars, two, three-day seminars where they go sit with a team of lawmakers from states that they're targeting to try to pass this, the, the, the compact and they, and they talk them through their concerns. John has a team of Democrats who go and meet with Democrats and he has a team of Republicans who go and meet with Republicans because the concerns of those lawmakers are different. You can understand why a Democrat would want to change the system. They're an easier sell, but you'd be surprised at how many push back. Uh, But with Republicans, it's a very different argument. And, you know, this gets at this, this question that Rick opened the whole conversation with, which is, well, what does it mean to go to a popular vote if you're not abolishing the Electoral College? The thing that appeals to the conservatives in this in John's uh, group is precisely that it is a state-based solution and not amending the Constitution. To them, that is the holy grail. To them, they don't want to amend the Constitution. They think the Constitution is, is fine as it was written. They think the framers were right. And they say, well, this is a problem with the way that we have implemented the framers' vision. But we can get around it without actually changing the original text of the Constitution. So that is why they're on board. I don't happen to see eye to eye with them on that. I'm happy to go. I'm happy to go by any route that gets us to a popular vote. Um, uh, but, but, but that answers your question about his politics. <laughs>
0: can I ask a question? Can I jump in here, Rick? I want to. I, I, I'm trying to understand. You need seventy more electoral votes. So, if you're going to figure out what states are most likely, what's the low hanging fruit if there is any? I mean, Al's been doing this a while. You guys have been very uh, involved and interested in it. What are there states that that are likely uh, to move so, on this?
2: So, Virginia actually, um, the Virginia uh, legislature actually passed the uh, compact in twenty eighteen or twenty early twenty nineteen. Uh, it had a, there was a parliamentary issue with it that uh, stalled it. And I, I um, Senator Franken might know the details of that, but the, the bottom line is it didn't end up passing in Virginia. They, I, I believe they're going to reintroduce it in the new session. If it passes Virginia, that's 13 more electoral votes. So then they'd be at 209, meaning they'd be 61 short. Now, one answer that I've given in, in, in the last few months when people have asked this question that you just asked, Patricia, is look at the states that would suffer the most under the current electoral college system, right? So a lot of the states that are suffering under it have already signed on. States like California and New York, uh, the big, you know, Illinois, the big Democratic-led states. But look at what's happening in a state like Texas. Texas has been a solid Republican state for decades, It has gone for the Republican, I think with with one or two exceptions for the last 50 years, it is a linchpin of the Republican path to the White House through the electoral college. It has 38 electoral votes, more than any state but California. Texas is moving blue fast. It, there, we had a discussion this year about whether Joe Biden could win Texas. I think you know, obviously that was premature. The point is the fact that we were talking about it at all should, come, should freak Republicans out because if Republicans start losing Texas in the electoral college, meaning if more Democrats vote for, if, if, if the Democratic candidate wins more votes in Texas than the Republican candidate, which could happen in the next four or eight years, they have no plausible path to the White House absolutely none. And then suddenly this wonderful, brilliant electoral college system that they've all been vaunting for the last 200 years becomes a a giant brick wall to the presidency. And then I think you can convince people, oh, wait a minute, this is not a system that works for us. And that's when I hope, uh, and and I would love to hear from people who who work more more directly with state lawmakers and understand them better than I do, that would impel them to say, we need to we need to start winning elections the way that elections should be won, which is by the people, winning the most votes of the people, having popular platforms that actually uh, win over voters rather than just trying to sneak in through these minoritarian uh, uh, structures. So I would think a state like Texas, a state like Georgia, a state like uh, Arizona might be next on board because those states are all moving in the direction of the Democrat Democratic candidate, but they still are led by Republicans. And so there's that uh, tension there that I think could be exploited.
0: We want to go to these other questions, but did you have anything to add on that, Al? Well,
2: oh, uh,
3: yeah. Uh, it's uh, the path was going to be North Carolina, which we we're going to flip both houses, which we didn't. Virginia was going to be, but it actually passed in the state, in the House, but not in the Senate. It was blocked in the Senate. We're gonna try again. Uh, Then Minnesota, which we had to pick up two uh, 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 state Senate seats, and because of the two marijuana parties taking votes away from uh, states, DFL, Democratic State Senate candidates, we still ended up too short. And the 2 there are two marijuana parties and their only platform is to legalize marijuana. And because they took those votes away from the Democrats, there's gonna be no bill to legalize marijuana for the next two years. If that doesn't tell you everything you need <laughs> to know about marijuana, I don't know what does. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Arizona, Maine, Nevada, Uh, Also, Pennsylvania and Michigan, but uh, because we didn't win those down ballot races and flip these state legislative uh, bodies, we may have to go the more expensive route, and that is by state referendums in states where they have those ballot initiatives.
0: Well, those can be very effective. They've been for Medicaid expansion um, and Medicare expansion. Um, so let me go to uh, the Honorable Gillian Sorensen. Uh, we're so thrilled you're here, former UN Assistant Secretary General for External Affairs. Gillian.
4: Thank you, Patricia, and thanks to our speakers. It's uh, so interesting. If I heard you correctly, you said that 15 states, all under Democratic leaders' leadership, have supported this. Um, The case for making a popular vote for one person, one vote to me is so compelling. It is so uh, much at the very uh, base of our notion of fair elections. Um, Would this not be a time to really organize a national movement to see if this could happen? and to uh, work with universities and with younger politicians who might see the advantage of this, and to do that on, an, on a more organized fashion. Because I, I feel as though this, this discussion comes up every few years. It sort of meanders along at a low level, but it never becomes a major issue. And it feels to me like now should be the time.
2: Yeah. Thanks for that question. Uh, it's a great point that this that this does tend to go away in non-presidential election years. I will. Uh, there's a counterpoint to that, which is there have been nearly eight hundred attempts throughout American history to amend or abolish the Electoral College uh-huh. through a constitutional amendment. It is by far the provision with the most efforts to do that uh, in the con- in the Constitution. Uh-huh. Uh, with the exception of the 12th Amendment, which we didn't really, weren't able to get to tonight, but it made some important but largely technical fixes to to the electoral college's functioning. None of those have succeeded. The closest one to success happened in 1969, 1970. I devote a full chapter to it in the book and I hope you read it because it's a really amazing story. It was an effort led by Senator Birch Bayh from Indiana, a Democrat, a centrist Democrat from Indiana, who kind of came to the same conclusion that you just did that one person, one vote should Trump all. And uh, he got basically the entire country behind him. 80% of Americans, uh, by the end of his effort in the 1960s, uh, supported a popular vote for president, supported abolishing the Electoral College in favor of a popular vote. It passed the House of Representatives. And the amendment passed the House of Representatives in 1969. And it looked like there might be enough states on board for ratification. But in 1970, uh, the Senate filibustered it to death. Uh, the filibuster was led by three Southern segregationists uh, who had uh, previously just filibustered the civil rights uh, legislation of the mid-1960s, and uh, they weren't just—they weren't about to give up the power that they had known and that their ancestors had known uh, as white politicians throughout American history. So, the 1970 effort was the last time that we ever came close to amending the Constitution. I think today, it just. I agree with you on a a matter of principle. uh, And I think most Republicans would agree with you, too, if if you ask them in the the, secrecy of their homes. uh, Or if you ask Donald Trump, say, on on the election night of 2012 when he tweeted, the Electoral College is a disaster for democracy. I put that in the jacket of my book because it's such a classic quote. Why would Donald Trump say that? because he thought briefly on election night of 2012 that Mitt Romney was going to win the most votes in the country and lose the Electoral College to Barack Obama. And he had the natural reaction, the reaction all of us have, which is no fair, right? (laughs) So I think all Republicans feel this way. The number of people who actually support the Electoral College on principle, on a principle that doesn't even make sense or have any historical correlate, is minuscule. The vast majority of people get the get the idea of one person, one vote, and they want their candidate to win if their candidate wins the most votes. The reason Republicans today will not come out in favor of the electoral college is because twice in the last 20 years, their candidate has won solely because of the electoral college. And they say it today. They say, if you take away the electoral college, we will never win again. Now, I make a case in the book for why that's not true. I actually think Republicans can be entirely competitive on the national level. They have chosen not to be. They have chosen to go a different route right now because it has worked for them. I think as long as it does, if it stops working for them for another cycle or two, I think you're gonna see a real change of heart. So I agree with you, this is the time to get that sort of national conversation going. That's what I'm hoping to do with this book. And that's what I hope we can keep up over the next decade.
0: Thank you. I just wanna mention, uh, we're always happy to have our honorables. We also have with us Amanda Burden, who is the uh, chief New York City planner under the Bloomberg administration. We're we're thrilled you're here too. But our next question is uh, Ralph and then Nicholas, and then Stan.
5: Uh, Good evening, everyone. Picking up on some comments you made, Patricia, and also the speaker, isn't this idea, which is a great one, likely to be overcome by changes in the electorate itself, because just looking at the numbers, it seems that you're not going to be able to get to 270 without getting Texas or Florida. And if you get Texas or Florida, then you're so close and you're comfortable that it doesn't matter making this change, because you have pretty much a lock on the
2: Electoral College. You mean your, your 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 assumption here is that if Texas or Florida were to pass it, it would be because those states were already trending democratic. Or to
5: put it another way, that Texas, the minute you win Texas or win Florida reliably, you no longer need to
2: think yeah. about this pact. That's you know it's a that's a fair point. Um, here's what here's my here's my response to that. Um, Politics changes all the time. Parties adapt to changing political circumstances. So we don't know for sure exactly. I don't think California, New York is about to turn into a a deep red state. But you know, states do change. And I, I think the problem is that as long as you have a few states that are these battleground states, that's the essence of the problem, is that those states are the only states that matter to the candidates of both parties. I talk in the book about how Barack Obama also, you know, he's, he's not immune to these pressures. Barack Obama, why, why did he bail out the auto industry? Of all the industries that needed a bailout in 2009, the auto industry, it was because they're in Michigan, and Ohio, those are swing states, or Ohio was a swing state back then. So I actually think uh, there's enough uh, uncertainty about where the party power lies that I'm not sure you could say that just by winning this state or that state that automatically uh, that means Democrats are going to win the electoral college anyway. Even if it did, the problem persists. Even when the candidate who wins the most popular votes also wins the electoral college, you have that same battleground state distortion, which is All these states that aren't battleground states get ignored, and all of their interests get ignored. So electing the president through a popular vote is not just about the person who gets the most votes becoming president. Of course, it's about that, and one person, one vote, and political equality. All of that matters to us. But it's not just about that. It's about making sure that presidents actually represent the people of the country accurately, and not just the people of the battleground states.
1: And it would get the uh, politicians in these flyover states back in the game. Exactly. It would be fun for them to have a national popular
2: vote. Exactly exactly.
0: Okay, um, I'm gonna go to Nicholas, but I just I also want to just uh, we've got a terrific group of people here and I want to thank Kate Koplovitz for for uh, coming in today. Uh, she's our on our honorary board and of course uh, founder of the USA network and um, an amazing um, boon to women entrepreneurs. so, Thank you for coming in today. And Nicholas, to you.
4: Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you uh, to, uh, to Patricia and the, and the speakers here. Um, I guess I, I had a question around the, the research of this book. Uh, obviously, you uh, are f- for uh, abolishing this, and that's the argument that you make. But uh, in playing devil's advocate to your argument, is there any kind of uh, reasonable, uh, uh, argument that came up that that is is, is hard to debunk or 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 that, that you feel could be a compelling reason to keep this.
2: Um, I, I was talking with Rick about this earlier. Uh, <laughs> um, please don't. Uh, uh, I'm not answering you glibly when I say no. Um, I, I I desperately I love being I love being challenged. I love having to overcome. Uh, good arguments uh, on the on the side that I don't think that I'm on, and sometimes even being convinced that I'm on the wrong side. In this case, uh, it it it's it's easy. Uh, it's I mean everybody basically there there is there is no good principled defense that stands up to the statistics, to the history, to the facts on the ground of how our system runs today. And so, as you'll see, I choose six of the most salient. Uh, myths surrounding the Electoral College and the popular vote, and I debunk them in my book. But again, I I refer you to John Coza's tome, which spends five or six hundred pages doing the same thing. Uh, It it takes a little longer to get through. Uh, He he doesn't quite tell stories like I do, but he really has his, he, he, he crosses every T and dots every I. It's a really astonishing piece of work. I would recommend that you look there because you'll see when you do, no, there's actually even the arguments that you hear most often, oh, well, you know the big cities would dominate the election, right? It, then, then all the candidates care about is New York and Los Angeles and nobody else matters. Completely untrue, completely untrue, both as a matter of campaign strategy and as a matter of sheer American demographics. Uh, or the small states uh, would be forgotten. You know They don't wanna change out of the electoral college. Actually, many small states have joined this interstate compact The small states hate the electoral college because it hurts them the winner take all rule hurts them they've known this for decades Delaware sued New York in 1966 under the 14th amendment equal protection clause because they said the winner take all rule was no fair to small states so all these kinds of things you just go through them and you think oh well I hear that so much it must be true it must be a good defense of the college in fact uh, it's just crickets. There's no good defense of the college, and nobody likes it as soon as they realize that their party suffers as a result of it.
1: Right, and there is no sentiment whatsoever to to starting a similar uh, way of choosing state governors, for example. Exactly. Get, you know, a county by county winner-take-all proposal for choosing governors
2: or senators. This is I love this point that Rick just made. Uh, If if this were such a good way to choose a leader, why aren't states doing it too? I will say, Rick, there is some sentiment. Uh, Every now and then I see usually a Republican lawmaker uh, say, this is ridiculous. We should have an electoral college in our state. Uh, This happened in in Kentucky actually last year when, when Bashir... Uh, sneak, squeaked out a victory with the help of the cities in Kentucky. And yet, you know, you look at a map and there's these few little blue spots and, it, and the rest is a big sea of red of, you know, of Kentuckians. And you think, oh my God, how could the Democrat? And of course, it's because all the people live in the, in the blue dots, uh, but, um, but they actually have tried to do that. And, the, and, and interestingly, the one person, one vote line of cases at the Supreme Court, the reason that we even have that phrase comes out of, a, of an electoral college type system that was used in the middle of the 20th century in the Deep South. And it was, it was a state electoral college system that treated votes differently. Now, that was a violation of the Constitution. What the, what the Supreme Court said at the time was, yeah, the, the National Electoral College also appears to violate one person, one vote. However, there's nothing we can do about it because it's in the Constitution itself. So they basically said, if you want to change it, go change the Constitution. We just interpret the thing. We don't write it. <laughs>
0: Okay Stan you're up.
1: Thank you Patricia.
0: (laughs) So my uh, question goes to the compact
1: being
2: a contract. What if the day before the election uh, the legislature says this isn't going our way let's get out of the compact and once again even worse the day after the election as in what uh, I forgot his name but the guy that used to be president he tried for the last eight or ten weeks to get to get legislatures to change what they had ruled. What's top that if it's a contract? Right, so, uh, it, so it is a contract, you're right. And, and in, in that regard, it is subject to the contract clause of the Constitution. Uh, it, as the contract itself, the compact's language includes a blackout period, as many contracts do, in which a state may not withdraw from the compact. And that blackout period goes from July 20th of election year to January 20th, Inauguration Day, a six-month window in which a state may not back out once it is a member. Now, I am sure, I guarantee you, there, there would be litigation over that, right? Could um, Article II's, uh, you know, grant of um, uh, exclusive authority to the states to decide how to award their electors trump the uh, contractual provisions? I think there are there are arguments both ways on that. I'm not sure how it would come out. Uh, I think it's fair of you to raise it as a concern, and it is one of the you know, issues with having a state-based compact solution to getting to a national popular vote, as Rick said at the beginning, case for abolishing the electoral college is a much, (laughs) doing it through the uh, constitutional amendment process is much cleaner, Um, but uh, yeah, this is, you know, you, you, you dance with who brung in. So, th- you know, this is, these are the kinds of things you're going to have to deal with. I think what the compacts authors would say is their goal is to have as so many states joining that they are far enough over 270 that the withdrawal of a state, even outside of the blackout period, would not uh, endanger the functioning of the, uh, of the um, compact itself.
0: Okay. Any, any, any final thoughts, uh, Rick or Al? Do you want to? Uh, we've got a few more minutes here.
3: Well, it's uh, again. This what took a lot of money this year was the Republicans saw after uh, four states passed this in 19 or in 18 and 19 in 19 actually. And uh, they panicked and they got on the Colorado ballot. Uh, Colorado has a pretty low threshold for signatures to get on, on the ballot. And uh, we, had to, we had to raise a lot of money to fight them and we won. Uh, and this may be because of our lack of success down ballot in all the states we're talking about as a path to this, that we may have to uh, go state by state in those states that have ballot initiatives. And uh, so uh, I know that some of the people who tune in uh, have extra cash on them. And so there may be initiatives to do that, and that's gonna take some some money. And by the way, when you, one thing I'd like to mention is before Trump won, Republicans were all for, the, for this because, remember the blue wall? <laughs> so, uh, and parts, uh, part of the blue wall were Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And so they felt, and in fact, Kerry, if he had flipped a, a, a very few votes in Ohio, would have won the election, won the Electoral College and lost the popular vote. So uh, this does go all, uh, goes all over the place. But because the two last Republican presidents were elected uh, without winning the popular vote. And one last thing, this is, it is so perverse. For example, and as a senator, this is very important, if, if you have a tornado or a flood in your state, you're twice as likely to get that declared a national disaster if you're from a battleground state. Yep. That is perverse. And for example, you mentioned Jesse, wildfires. There was a point at which there were wildfires in Colorado and wildfires in Texas and Barack Obama's administration when Colorado was a swing state and Texas wasn't sent more to Colorado to fight their wildfires just because of this
2: there's research on this i mean that people have researched what they call the presidential pork barrel right it's it is presidents have constituencies too and they know they know where their bread is buttered and they know where to spend the money and it's not just republicans it's democrats too and that is the distortion that is caused by a system that focuses all of its attention on this small sliver of voters in a few randomly chosen states battleground states are not battleground for any meaningful reason they are just happen to be states where the where the democrats and republicans are very closely divided and so a little bit of work in those states by the candidates could push, the, could push uh, the, the, all the electoral votes into one camp or the other. So it really is uh, so distorting and so destructive, I think, to our politics to think in these red and blue um, t- terms. Uh, and, and it's one reason I would just say that I would support, as long as we're talking about this compact, I really would support making it bipartisan, whether by state initiatives, uh, state ballot measures like you did uh, in, in Colorado or um, through through the state lawmakers themselves. Because when you are, cha- I mean, yes, it's a state-based system, a state-based solution, but when you are changing the way you elect the president of the country, it really would help to have buy-in from both sides. I think it would be, um, it could be really destructive if it's not, if, if it isn't done that way. Destructive is the Republican party, however.
0: <laughs> well, we're not, we won't be partisan today. What, Rick, any last thoughts? <laughs>
2: That's, a, that's, that's, for another, that's for another meeting. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry.
3: I broke a rule, I guess. <laughs>
2: I'm just saying purely as a matter of function, like getting, getting it to function and, and getting people to buy into it. It would help to have um, everyone acknowledge that this is something that we want. And if that has to happen because someone like John Kerry wins the, the electoral college, but losing the popular vote, I I would be fine with it happening that way, or if it happens with Republicans finally deciding we can't win in the electoral college anymore, we're gonna have to try to win through the popular vote. Great, I'll take it that way too, but it's just everybody's gotta feel some stake in this.
1: And it would be nice if there were some politicians Who made the calculation on the basis of what's best for the country and what's best for democracy, rather than just what's best for me in the next ten
0: minutes? (laughs) Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, you this—I mean—you've really um, helped explain things and um, and make it so understandable how this could really work. I think it's one of the uh, most—it's one of the trickiest things and naughtiest things that we we have to deal with every four years. So thank you so much. I want to thank you, Rick, for, for uh, taking us through this. And Jesse was fascinating. Thank you. Right Fantastic. right uh, as we uh, got our, our, our a new president. Um, we've got a great uh, series of, of Zooms coming up. We've got um, our, our uh, forecasters, our economic forecasters, Byron Wien and Joe Zeidel. That'll be fascinating. On February 11th, we're going to have David Rubenstein talk about leadership on February 18th. Uh, we've got our American Spirit Awards and our Common Good Forum on March 4th with John Meacham, Ray Dalio, Ambassadors Mary Yovanovitch, Bill Taylor, and Fiona Hill, and a number of other people, hosted by Margaret Hoover. Um, we've got a, an event with Ambassador Etienne, which was supposed to be uh, next week, and is now going to be March 10th. So, please uh, come back. We. Um, enjoyed it so much. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Senator Franken. We're so happy to see you again. My pleasure. Hope we see you all very
4: soon. Thanks.